Hey everyone, my name's Hank, Digital Pastor here at the Foundry Church. We just want to say thank you for tuning in to our sermon series podcast. We're an awesome series now where we are exploring gospel wisdom in a new series that we're calling Uncommon. We really hope that this time blesses you and that you have an awesome time listening in and checking in with us here in Central Florida. If you're looking for a church family or if you're a part of our church family already, we would love to connect with you more online. You can head to our website, www.thefoundry.org. That's www.thefoundry.org. Or you can find us on social media, specifically our Facebook page and our Facebook group are great ways to get connected with us. So we're going to hand it off now to Seth as we jump in to today's message in our series, Uncommon. Thanks for listening. I am so very glad you're here. Yeah, we love you too, Seth. Thanks, guys. Um, (laughs) uh, Whether you're joining us in person or online, thank you guys for being here. I want to give a big shout out to Mr. Joseph Q. Robinson for doing a great job last week and bringing the message. Um, I'm always grateful for him. I'm grateful for his heart and the gift that he is to this place, so thank you to Joe. This past weekend was a, was a big weekend around here for the church and for the community. We had a bunch of stuff happening. We had the uh, Better You, Better World 5K, which was awesome. Uh, big shout out to Patty Mertz and her crew and all the volunteers that helped to put that on. Thank you to you guys. Um, what's awesome is, so we had several... Uh, businesses that donated to this, sponsors and stuff, some of our own people that their business sponsored, so awesome. Uh, between them, and then we had, I think, 60 or 70 people sign up and, and or donate to the cause, and then we had like 50 people actually run the race and all this stuff, and so between all of that, we were able to raise over $3,000, which is incredible, yeah, to... Um, to go to Grace Mount Nutrition Center, who are our friends Dave and Elizabeth Lincoln-Hoker and the work that they're doing in Haiti, which, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff happening in Haiti always, but uh, it's just cool that we're able to support them, especially in a time like this. So thank you to the businesses that supported. Thank you to you who participated or donated. We're so very grateful for you guys. Uh, and then, of course, we had a whole other thing happening the same weekend, last weekend, the same day, and Sunday, which was we had people down at the Winter Springs Art Festival. So we had um, Elise Trindle, our children's minister and Hunter Mertz, our family life minister, down there hosting a kids' corner so that the kids had somewhere to go so they didn't break all the artwork. You know what I'm saying? Like, like keep them away from the fancy paintings. Um, so not only was our church in front of thousands and thousands of people in our community, but also like the they they had like over 300 kids in their family that they directly interacted with at their tent. So I want to give a big shout out to them as well for doing a great job. Um, it's, it, it's just so very cool, and, and, and I just find myself overflowing with gratitude for our staff, for our volunteers, for, for this family. Like, I can't thank you enough that I get to be a part of what you are doing in this community, and I'm, and I'm grateful for that, to be a part of as, as we reclaim God's intended reality in the here and now. So thank you for being an example of what it looks like to be a better you and an example of what it looks like to create a better world, so... There you have it, uh, before we get emotional. So, brand new series we're starting this week that we're calling Uncommon. That's the weird-looking fish going the opposite direction. This is a metaphor for my life. Um, 
We're calling the series Uncommon, an introduction to gospel wisdom. Several months ago, we did a whole series on conventional wisdom, traditional wisdom, and we looked at Psalms and Proverbs, and we saw that wisdom was personified as a woman. We saw that she was calling out to all mankind, inviting us to her. So this series is kind of like the next step. It's like the, the what comes after the traditional wisdom. So this isn't about traditional conventional wisdom. This is a bit different. This is what we're calling gospel wisdom or kingdom wisdom or Christ wisdom. And it's a bit different than conventional type of wisdom. It's, it's, a, bit, uh, it's a bit sideways sometimes. It's, it's not the, the, the normal sort of thing. It's, it's about the teachings of Jesus that kind of go against the grain, that seem to be a bit peculiar or a bit like uh, anti the flow of things. It's going in the opposite direction. Uh, it's a wisdom that's very uncommon, okay? So that's like the basis of this series. So let's start today with a question. The question that I want you to kind of just kind of rattle around in your head for a minute is this. What is the goal of life? Figure that out at 10, 16 a.m. on a Sunday. What's the goal of life? And, and maybe this isn't just like what you particularly think the goal of life is, but like in general, like in the American psyche, in our culture, what is the goal? What is the point of everything that, that we're up to? What's the dream, right? What, get, a, get an education, be able to get a job, make as much money as possible so you can buy nice things, the car, the house, the, go on nice vacations. Maybe you want to, I don't know, raise a couple kids so you can have some sort of legacy so you can be remembered. Like what's, what's the goal? Often, it seems to me like, uh, no matter how you slice it, like when you begin to peel back the layers on what people believe about that uh, question or what they say they believe about that question, is like there's always this underlying idea that something to do with like the goal of life has to do with getting more, acquiring more stuff. And, and I don't think I've met somebody that, that, uh, that if I were to say to you like, hey, um, could you use an extra hundred grand in your bank account, that they say, no, 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 I'm good. I've, I've got enough. I don't think I've ever really heard somebody say, like, how are you doing, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah, I've got more than I need. I mean, some people say this. Not often, but you hear this occasionally. Uh, I don't think I've ever met somebody that when they saw their neighbor get the new mower or the new car or the new boat or the remodel of some particular por portion of their house that they didn't have that little inner voice that said, oh, how come I can't have that? Right? I wish I could get the mower or the car or the remodel or whatever that thing is. All right, so what do we do? Well, we spend our lives trying to earn more money. We, 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 we can buy more stuff, and it's in all these things that we do that, that we attempt to acquire, that we, this life that we try to create, all the things we buy that essentially become a part of our identity. And, and even as we're developing this identity, as we're acquiring more, we keep continually comparing ourselves to the people and to the world around us. Well, how come they have this? And how come I don't have that? And how come? And, and really, if you like start to think about this, this is like a recipe. This is like the perfect recipe for a lifetime of disappointment, for a lifetime of, being, uh, 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 not, uh, of not being content, of continually feeling that you're less than or not enough, which really, I mean, it sounds like kind of a miserable, miserable way to live, but yet we continually are comparing and contrasting and do you know what I'm talking about? Well, if I'm not getting those things, then like, who am I? Well, if I, if I don't have this much stuff, well, 
So I found myself in a position the past couple weeks where I had several instances where I felt like I wasn't measuring up because this is like how we think in general. Uh, the first one is I I'd met this fella and, and we were talking about family and kids and stuff and he had a couple kids that were my age and he was telling me about how much his kids love to read. He's like, my daughter, his daughter's about my age. She's like, he goes, she just loves to read. She loves all, to read all the time. She'd rather read a book than watch a movie or, or be on a tablet or something like that. And I'm like, man, that's incredible. He's like, well, yeah, we go to the library and we check out stacks of books and I'm like, that's awesome. I wish my kids would read more and, and maybe I should do that and maybe, uh, I'm, maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I need to be the one setting the example, and am I, am I a bad parent, like, because my kids aren't reading the way his kids are reading, and you ever found that, where you're talking with somebody with parents, and they have kids, and they're about your age, and you're like, how come they got, they seem to have it all figured out, and then I feel like less than because of how good that he seems to be doing, and it's just like, ah, you get this, like, twinge of guilt, like, I should be doing more or something, or I met this other guy, <laughs> I found out he was like this, um, He's like a high-end, like, cardiothoracic surgeon or something, like a heart surgeon. And uh, he's, he's not married. He's single, dating a girl who's another surgeon. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of living this single life with doctor money. And I'm like, that's awesome. And he was getting a new job, and he was talking about he was in the market for houses at this new place. And he said, yeah, man. He's like, well, my budget's a million, but I'm really finding it tough to find something that meets my requirements. And I was like, wow, like, uh, yeah, that must be tough. I mean, good for you. I, I understand. That's, that's probably really tough to only have a million-dollar budget for your second house. Like, gosh. Uh, I said, you know, me and Jess, like, we got super lucky when we bought our property. I go, we were able to slide in just under a million by, like, 800000 <laughs> And uh, we feel pretty good about it, right? But, but I'm just listening to him, like, oh, my gosh. You ever find yourself feeling like, like, I should do something different with my life. I, I should pursue a different line of work. Like, oh, like, what does this guy do? How do you, you find yourself around people with like a lot more finances or stuff than you have and you just kind of start rethinking like your value and what am I worth and how come I can only, uh, <laughs> then there's my brother-in-law, his name is Garrett. Uh, Garrett is a, is a, uh, let's see, he builds stuff. What's that called? Not a, he's a carpenter. Yes, that's the right word. He's a carpenter, and he builds amazing stuff. He builds just amazing stuff. He can build just about anything. He's got this great knowledge and this great talent, and I watch the stuff he makes, and I'm like, man, this is incredible. Like, I can't build stuff like that. When I build stuff, it's like a kindergarten project where they take popsicle sticks and glue them to construction paper. That's my kind of building, and I'm like, man, this guy is phenomenal at what he does. How does he even do that? And then I start questioning, like, is there anything I'm that good at? Like, how come I can't be as good as him at this stuff? Do you know what I'm saying? And you just start. By the way, speaking of brother-in-laws, I do want to give a shout-out. Is Mitchell here? Mitchell and Hannah, they ran a 50K yesterday, which is awesome. Uh, it was his first ultra marathon, Hannah's second, and they, they crushed it, so I'm ex excited for them. Their legs are sore. Give them a punch when you see them later. Um, <laughs> so I, I look at this stuff, I'm just like, man, I wish there was something that I was that good at, Right? If the goal of life is to make money and be successful, to make a name for yourself, to accumulate as much as you can, and that's how I determine my worth and my value and my identity, and I keep playing this comparison game with the people around me, then the odds are that I will probably never measure up. I, I, I won't be as good as a parent as that guy. I won't have as much money as this other guy. I won't be able to build as great stuff as this guy. 
And even in my own realm of work, there are a lot of guys that do this very same thing I do that are really, really good at it. Like, if I keep playing that comparison game, I will never measure up. If my identity is tied to all of that, if that's where I find my value and my worth, if I constantly feel like, uh, I will constantly feel like I'm not enough and that I don't measure up. But you see, this is the beauty, this is the absolute beauty of gospel wisdom. This is, this is why we need this stuff. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, I know, I know what some of you may be thinking is like, this is gospel wisdom, you're in Acts, like how does that work? That's like after the gospel. Well, you know. well, what we see is there's a story here where Jesus is interacting with somebody uh, and he, he shows up onto the scene and he begins to, to have this discussion. And anytime Jesus shows up somewhere, like usually he's announcing the good news. And if he's announcing the good news, then he's introducing us to gospel wisdom. Okay, Acts chapter nine is a story of the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. If you've been around the church, you may have heard people talk about this, and we always talk about Saul's Damascus road conversion as like this big, life-changing sort of thing, which it is, right? But it's always like this dramatic thing. Oh, I remember when I had my Damascus road moment. Or I grew up in church when I was little, so I didn't really have a big Damascus road conversion moment, okay? So let's look at the story. I wanna read through it, and then we'll go back through it and unpack it, okay? Acts chapter nine, verse one through nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him uh, for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Saul for a second, who he was. Then we're going to talk about like the thing that actually happens in this story that you may have like, not really thought of before. And then we're gonna talk about what that all means for us today, okay? So let's start with Saul. Look at the first two verses here. Again, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for the letters uh, to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So before there were Christians, the first followers of Christ were actually known as the people of the way, right? They, they came first and then it kind of got translated later. So because the teachings of Jesus, they were about a particular way to live and be in the world, right? Uh, because of his teachings, he was talking about a kingdom that was a bit different, that was a bit contrary to the ways of the world. Because of his teachings, they had a completely different vision about what it meant to be alive and to be human in this world. Jesus, Jesus taught weird things for like culture. He taught things like love your neighbor as yourself. He taught things like love your enemy. He, he taught things like put the sword away. He taught things like taking care of the poor and the hurting. He taught things like turn the other cheek, which isn't about being a doormat, but it's this third way nonviolence sort of thing. All this stuff that's very uh, counterintuitive uh, that, that's, that's kind of opposed to cultural and religious norms of the day. 
Okay, so let's start, uh, the story starts with Paul. He's this extremely religious man. He's extremely devout Jew. He's got some serious issues with these people who belong to the way. Because in his mind, they are stepping out of what he would consider right religion. So he wants to take them down. He, he is persecuting them. He's trying to imprison them, all this stuff. Which in and of itself is kind of an interesting thought. Okay, not just that he wants to be right, that his thinking is the Jewish way is the right way. So the thing that he believes is the right way. It's not just that he wants to be right, but it's that those who have a different opinion than he does, he wants to destroy. He wants to punish. It's, it's like this, his identity is so caught up in his religion and his religious accomplishments and his being right, his rightness is so important to him that it wasn't just enough to be right, he has to prove how wrong they are. And it's almost like he has to prove how wrong they are in order to validate his own sense of rightness. This is kind of how the ego works, isn't it? That in order for me to be right, somebody else has to be wrong. In order for me to win, somebody else has to lose because the ego always needs an enemy to fight against in order to prop the self up. Isn't this what we see like almost every weekend in college football? Yeah, like we root for our team. Everybody's got their team. And in order for everybody to know that my team is the best team, that my tribe is the right one, my team has to beat your team. That's how I know that I'm better than you are. I need them to win to validate my connection and my support to that school because we are the best. The Gators need to beat Georgia. <laughs> we know that's probably not going to happen. But we need them to win to validate our connection to the school, right? I would say the Gators need to beat the Seminoles, but everybody's beating them. That wouldn't validate anything. <laughs> My apologies to the Florida State Seminole fans. Um, Republicans need Democrats. Look at what's wrong with them. They're the problem. Look how right we are. Democrats need Republicans. Look at how wrong they are. That's what's wrong with our country. Look at how right we are, right? The ego needs enemies, and so we're looking not just to be right with something, but we have to prove somebody else wrong to validate our rightness. So uh, Paul, Saul is a super orthodox, religiously correct person, and there's this new group of people, the people of the way, who find their identity not in the law of the Jews, but in the grace and the love that Jesus offers. And, and the people of the way are stepping outside of the religious bindings of the law. They're stepping into this new freedom found in Jesus. And their freedom is viewed as a threat to the religious institution. Freedom is always viewed as, as a threat to a system, isn't it? Like Saul isn't free in this moment. The people of the way are the free ones. They've been liberated from playing the games of culture and religion where their identity and their worth is tied to their accomplishments, their title, their ranking within the society and the culture. Every system and every culture has a way of doing things. This has a certain set of values. This is what is important. This is what success looks like. This is the way to climb the ladder. This is the way to get ahead. And when somebody steps outside of that system that has been put in place, it's viewed or considered to be a threat to the values and the principles of that system. I mean, if you think about in our country, if you look at like the, the hippies of the 60s and 70s, 
right? What was the, what's the American dream? What's the goal? Well, you get the education, you get the job, you get the family, you work at the job till you retire, you get the fancy watch, and then you die, right? Like, that's the thing. And then the hippies were like, yeah, 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 we're not so into that. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to live a particular different kind of lifestyle. I'm not saying agree or disagree. I'm just saying they stepped outside of what the, the norm was. And then how are they viewed? They were the weirdos. They're the hippies. That's the word we still use as the weirdo people, isn't it? They're the weirdos. They, they, were the, they were what's wrong with the American society. You see? They stepped outside and then they became the enemy because that freedom was a sense of threat. This story is about a guy who's completely caught up in his own righteousness, in his own religiousness, and his sense of identity is connected to uh, this so much that he's not only, he, that, that he's persecuting and imprisoning the people that he believes to be wrong. Now, uh, let's talk about what actually happens in this story. Because again, often this story gets told and it's this big dramatic conversion sort of thing. But let's relook at this just for fun. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Okay, did you catch that? Saul's on the road to Damascus. A light flashes around him. He falls to the ground. A voice says, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who's this? He says, I'm Jesus. Go wait in the city. If you boil this story down, if you break this down like, to like it's just most basic little components and its simplest structure, this so-called dramatic conversion is, is it's kind of mundane if you think about it. What happens? Saul's on his way to work. It's another, it's another Tuesday. He's ready to go persecute some people. Uh, he's maybe stuck in traffic. He's sitting in I-4, hating his life. A light flashes. A voice from the sky asks a question. He responds with a question. And then the voice says, okay, go sit on a bench in the park for however long. I don't know yet. We'll see how it goes. So it's two questions. And then he's told to go sit in the city, right? Here, here's, here's the reenactment. Saul, what are you doing? Who's this? Go wait over there. Like, <laughs> that's the whole story. That's the whole story. Like, you look at, like, that's a dramatic conversion? What, what happened? It, he, asked, he got asked a question. He responded with a question. And then he's told to go wait for an indefinite period of time. Okay, it moves on. Verse 7, the man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard that, the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So he's on his way to work. The light flashes. He's asked a question. He asks a question. He's told to go wait for some indefinite period of time. We also now find out that he's blind. He has to be led by the hand. He has no food. He has no drink. He has to wait for three days. Do you see what's happening here in this kind of non-thing that's a thing? It's like in this moment, he's having all the ways that he identifies himself being taken away from him. 
He's stripped of everything that he previously relied on for his worth and his value and his identity. He's this strong, capable man who's rounding up the followers of Christ with his strength and with his sword. He's the big dog. He's the leader of the group of people who are hunting the heretics, the people of the way, in order to prove his own rightness. And then all of a sudden, he has all of that taken away from him, right? Now he is no longer leading this group of men. Now because he is blind, he is being led by this group of men to this unknown location for an unknown period of time. Now the one who was trying to accomplish this mission to round up the Christians, his mission has failed. The thing that he was identified for doing and known for, what he was, for who he was, that's been taken away from him because he has failed this mission. Now he's sitting there blind He has no food, he has no drink, he has no power. All of the ways that he identified himself, all of the markers of success, they're all taken from him. He has nothing. He is now completely dependent upon others. He is now completely dependent upon not his own strength. He's left with nothing but his presence. For three days, he can do nothing but sit and be. He's stripped of everything else. There's this emptiness. There is this nothingness that he must now exist in. Everything that that he'd been leaning on for his identity, his value, his worth, his rightness is now gone, and he has no idea how long this will last. He has no idea what's next. Where is this whole thing going? It's in the emptiness, it's in the nothingness that Jesus steps into. It's in the emptiness and the nothingness that Jesus steps into and out of the emptiness and the nothingness that there is birthed this new thing, that there is birthed the one that we now call the Apostle Paul, the one who ended up writing the bulk of the New Testament the one who was the catalyst for the, for the Jesus movement to begin to spread around the world. You see, gospel wisdom carries this really strange idea. It's so strange, it's almost backwards feeling sometimes, that it's not in the propping up of the self that leads to the fullness of life, but rather it's in the death of self. It's in the death of the ego. All the things that we use to acquire a sense of self and identity and worth, it's in the death of all of that that there can be rebirth. When we die to the self, when we die to the system, when we die to the culture of the day so that we may be reborn, that we may be reborn into the freedom and the life of the kingdom. So what does this mean for us? Well, if, if you notice in the story, there's really no mention of Saul's like orthodoxy. There's no mention of how talented he is. There's no mention of how good or how bad he is. There's there's nothing about his doctrine or his logic or his ability to reason. All the things that we might normally think are the things that God was looking for to use somebody. Oh, well, that's why God picked him because he was this, this, and this, and he had all these abilities and all these accolades, and look at what he'd done. He was actually a brilliant guy, and yeah, we get that. But none of that is mentioned, none of that, because to mention that would still be playing the game that everyone else is playing. That his value to God had something to do with his accomplishments. But here's the thing, he's in the city. He's waiting somewhere, somewhere with no sight, 
No power, no food, no drink, waiting in the nothingness. And it's in the emptiness and the nothingness that something new is given birth. This is a beautiful picture of, of gospel wisdom, that it's all our striving and, and our worrying and our achieving and trying to earn, all these things that we think will do something to earn or prove something, that they aren't really earning us anything, really, and all the things that we thought that we had to have, everything that we thought that we were earning when we were actually doing this, like, we, we've kind of already had it the whole time. Saul is stripped of everything that he had so that in his nothingness he could come to see that he had already everything he needed. Gospel wisdom is, is learning to be excited about our nothingness. It's being, it's being excited. Uh, it's the nothing that we should be excited about because it's in the nothingness that Jesus actually has the space to work. It's this good news about your nothingness. Gospel wisdom is the announcement that we are loved, that we are rescued, that we are saved, that we are validated, and that we are affirmed, not through anything that we have done, but through through Jesus, the love and validation and security and identity that most people are chasing the entirety of their lives, you've actually already had. But the truth is, it, it, the idea of nothingness is a bit scary to us, isn't it? Because if I let go of everything that I used to prop myself up, then who am I? If, if I don't root for that team, who am I? If I don't have that title or that position, who am I? If I don't have that money in the account, if I don't have that connection to that religion, if I don't have, who, if I don't post regularly on Facebook and nobody knows what I did this weekend, who am I? If people don't see that I'm doing stuff on a regular basis through social media, who am I? If people don't like me enough if I don't get enough clicks, who am I? That's a bit scary. If I'm stripped of all these things that I use to prop up myself, then what becomes of me? But what we fail to realize is that the gospel wisdom, Christ's wisdom, doesn't meet us in the hey, look at me moments. In the hey, look at what I've done, look how great I am. Gospel wisdom is what meets us when we let go of all that. Gospel wisdom is what meets us when we don't have it all together. It's what meets us in our failure. It's what meets us in our mistakes and our low moments. It's what meets us when our self-control has run out, when our will has been broken, when our will to resist has been broken. It's in these moments that gospel wisdom shows up and reminds us that it's in those moments of emptiness and nothingness that we are, in fact, still loved. That's a beautiful message. You see, but what religion has done from time to time is that it's taken this life-changing, brilliant, beautiful message of Jesus, this amazing gospel wisdom, and kind of turned it into another law. And we've made it a bit transactional. We've made the gospel message transactional. It's this idea that when I believe that I've done the right thing and, and, and I've, uh, I believe the right thing and I do the right thing, then I'm in. The, the transaction is, in order to be in, you have to check the boxes, and once you check the boxes, it's all good. And, but what this also means is that if you're in by doing and checking all the right boxes and that's how you get in, then it also means that if the people who haven't done the things that you have done, that they are out, 
And so we've taken this big, beautiful message and we've boiled it down. We, we've minimized the power of Jesus. We, we've, we've undermined the power of Jesus by boiling it down to like, just are you in or are you out? And the problem is that the gospel wisdom, this wonderful announcement of the good news is that it's in your death it's in your nothingness, your loss, your failure. It's in your outness, not in your inness, that you're actually found and saved and loved and valued. Saul's salvation comes when he's stripped of all the things that he was using to prop himself up. He has no sight, no, no, no food, no drink, no power. He's told to go and wait and sit in the nothingness because that's where the gospel wisdom shows up. That's where it shows up to remind you that your identity and your value has nothing to do with all the stuff that you thought you must do to be somebody. Gospel wisdom is not transactional. Gospel wisdom is this announcement of what's been true all along. You see, so if you find yourself going through life and you are regularly, on a regular basis, wrestling with like your value, your identity, feeling like you don't measure up, feeling like you're not enough, where you find yourself seeing how great other parents are and how many books their kids read and you feel like a jerk. <laughs> you see how much money people around you have and you feel like a poor person and you're just thankful that you get to pay this month's bills. Or you find yourself in a place where people, you see they're building, doing all this great stuff and you're like, I can't put together popsicle sticks. Or you find yourself even in your own realm of work thinking, I'm okay, but like, there's a lot of people that are really good at what I do. It's gospel wisdom that meets you in these moments. Not with guilt and shame and condemnation, but with a reminder that nothing can separate you from the love of your heavenly Father. With this announcement, right? It, it meets you with this announcement that God isn't keeping score. It meets you with this announcement and this reminder that the whole points and ranking systems that we buy into, God doesn't play those kind of games. And here's the thing about the gospel wisdom. It's so counterintuitive, it's so uncommon, it's so against the grain, it's because it's the opposite of what the world teaches, what culture teaches, what we've been taught to think about how the world works. It's so foreign to us, it seems so strange. It, it seems out of line, it's out of our normal way of thinking and our mode of operation. In fact, it's so strange, it may seem like too good to be true. It's so strange, it may even seem a bit wrong, but this is why it's so absolutely life-changing. When you see this, when you understand this, like there is a profound sense of freedom that comes with this. On, on his way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, Saul was not free. It was only in the removal of, of the ego, in the removal of all the things he used to prop himself up that he found freedom within the gospel wisdom. It was in his nothingness, it was in his emptiness that he found his true value and identity, which was in Christ. And here's what's really interesting about all this, is like, and not only does it mean that you don't have to keep earning and striving and trying to prove yourself in order to be loved, it also means that when you understand this freedom in your emptiness, when you understand this freedom in your nothingness, this freedom that you do not have to earn or prove anything to anyone, when you understand that, it then actually frees you up to live a whole different kind of life. You can do some amazing things in this freedom. Like, you can now start to do a really meaningful work. You can take on a great challenge in the world because you're not doing it from a place of needing validation. 
oh, I have to go do this big thing and make something in my life because I need people to validate me and love me. No, no, no. When you understand that you have already been validated and it's in your nothingness that you find your true identity that is in Christ, it's in that moment when you understand you've already been validated, you can go and do anything because now your validation isn't dependent upon if that thing you're trying to do succeeds or fails. Oh, well, it didn't work. Okay, do something else. You're not looking for love. You've already got it. What a big difference that you're operating out of a place of already being validated, which means that now you don't have to operate out of a place of fear of failure. I don't have to desperately seek the validation of others because I've already got it in Christ. Like what a gift. What an absolute gift to operate out of a place of security and validation that you already have. We started with this question of, like, what is the goal of life? Maybe the world says to acquire, to gain, to earn, to climb the ladder. That's where your value and your worth is found. Gospel wisdom says, no, no, no. It's in your emptiness that your true value is found. It's in the nothingness that gives Jesus the space to move and to operate within your life. This story actually reminds me of something else that Jesus says from the Gospels, Matthew chapter 16. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will find it. Whoever loses himself will find himself. This is the announcement of gospel wisdom that you don't have to keep playing the earning and proving and comparison game. It's the nothingness that we should be excited about. It's the freedom of not proving and earning that we should take a great deal of joy in. And the question that we have to wrestle with, that we will continue to wrestle with, is will you trust that? Will you trust it? Will you trust it that through Christ you are already validated, you are already loved, and your value has absolutely nothing to do with what you do or don't do? We're going to go into our time of communion. This is a time where we take a moment to think, to pray, to meditate, to commune with God. We take the bread and we take the juice, these things that remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus that speak to the hope that we have in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about this meal in light of what we just talked about. What does Jesus do? He dies to the self so that something new is reborn, so that new life, so that hope, that forgiveness, that it's all given birth through resurrection. But it starts with the death of the self. So in this moment, we remember the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. We remember that through him, we have eternal life. We remember that we have this gift of being validated because of the work that he has done. So we're gonna give you some time, some space to think, to pray. Maybe you're clinging to some stuff. Maybe you've got some things in your life that you're propping up the self with, that you're clinging to for a sense of identity. And what you've missed out on is the nothingness. So maybe your prayer is just simply, God, show me what I'm leaning on. If it's not you, show me what I'm leaning on so that I can step away from that.
Maybe your prayer today is just simply, God, take me. I just need help. I need... This is a gift. It's a beautiful thing. Let me pray for you and give you some space. Dear Lord, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you that through him we may have life. We thank you for resurrection. We thank you that in the death of self, there is room for rebirth. God, help us to stand firmly in the rebirth. Help us to live boldly with the idea that we don't have to prove anything to anyone. Help me to live boldly knowing that we have already been validated through your son. God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that our sins have been dealt with. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. It's Hank one more time. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to this awesome series that we've been in, Uncommon. Our hope and our prayer is that you can listen to these messages and take away from them a new perspective on the truths and the ideas and the concepts that we talked about so that you can live your life in a little bit of a different way than you did before. We really are glad to have so many of you who participate and engage with us in our online platforms and through our online messages. Again, if you want to learn more about us and who we are as a church, and you want to learn more about what it means to reclaim God's intended reality for your life and creating a better you and a better world, head to our website. That's www.thefoundry.org. Again, that's www.thefoundry.org. Look for our awesome Facebook group as well, which is a great place to connect with people who are part of our church, both here in Central Florida and abroad. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.